Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Marvin Ross joins me on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. He writes on health issues for the Huffington Post Canada and other publications. And Marvin has been on the chronic pain issue for quite some time now. And I know he shook up the Ontario establishment when he wrote a column that Ontario has declared war on pain patients. And Marvin, that was a quite some time ago, and things have gotten worse since. Yeah, they definitely have, Roy. Good to have you with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Also with me from Edmonton is Barry Ulmer. He's the executive director of the Chronic Pain Association of Canada. Both Marvin and Barry have been on this program before. Barry, anything that I said off the top uh, ring untrue to you? Not a word of it, Roy. It's dead on. How bad is it? How bad is it for the chronic pain patient who just has been diagnosed? How bad is it for the chronic pain patient who has been struggling with a lot of constant and and agonizing pain and now enters the system, the healthcare system, in the mood that it's in about certain medications? Well, I say good luck to them if they can even find somebody that's going to sit down with them and try to work a, a proper program out and, and uh, forget medication because you have fewer and fewer doctors that are even staying in the, in the, uh, the area of pain medicine. They're just being uh, uh, dropping like flies, shall we say. Yeah. Marvin, why is so little attention being paid to so many people who are suffering so greatly? I mean, we, we know you and I have talked about and Barry has talked about and we've, we've, we've all, you know, had concerns about the pain summit that was held in Ottawa last year to which no pain patient and no physician of pain patients was invited. But why are the pain patients being pushed to the background? Why are the stories massaged and directed in a way to make it seem as though they're the problem, they're the addicts, they're the ones who are causing the issues? Well... That's a difficult one to answer, but governments like simple solutions. And this is a complex problem. And so I guess they've come up with the idea that uh, we'll blame the doctors for everybody who's got an addiction problem, which is ridiculous, mm -hmm. and uh, we'll pretend that we're doing something by making it difficult for patients with chronic pain to get their prescriptions and everybody will think we're doing something when in fact they're doing absolutely nothing you know and it's interesting there was a, a presentation about a month or so ago uh, in which it was revealed that prescriptions for opioid medications are going down, but deaths are going up. So quite clearly, the problem has nothing to do with doctors prescribing. Mm -hmm. um, it has to do with people buying illicit drugs, which are made God knows where, and taking their chances that it might or might not kill them. Yeah, and in some cases, maybe increasingly, these people who are buying drugs on street corners are people who've been turned away by their doctors after having for years, because the system threatens the doctor, the doctor says, I'm not going to give up on my medicine, on my license to practice medicine. I won't prescribe this anymore. So the person feels they have no other recourse and they go out and they buy the drugs on the street corner. They don't know what they're buying. It's not the same kind of uh, medication they were getting previously. It's not even medication. It's God knows what. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Barry Ulmer is uh, one of my guests. He is the executive director of the Chronic Pain Association of Canada. He's in Edmonton. And Marvin Ross, great writer on health issues for the Huffington Post uh, Canada. And Marvin, just about 10 seconds here, I'll take a call. But the other mainstream uh, print media that you used to write for are not interested in this story from you about chronic pain patients, I take it. Yeah, it's very difficult to sell anything to mainstream media. I, I'm not the only one who's running into that problem. Um, it seems like the mantra is uh, opioids are bad, 
and we don't want to hear anything else. So it's always great to be in the media, great to be a reporter with your mind made up. Sylvia is in uh, Brampton, Ontario. I'm not a reporter, I'm an opinions journalist. Sylvia in Brampton, Ontario. Hi, Sylvia, go ahead, please. Hi. Hi. Well, okay, we keep hearing, um, thank you, thank you for doing this. I've been a chronic pain patient, you know, uh, back surgeries didn't work. Anyways, I'm not going to get into details, but I am legitimately a chronic pain patient. I've been to a clinic, uh, cl- uh, um, pain clinic for 20 Just relax. And Just relax, Sylvia, okay? Hearing, you know this new thing that's going on with the fentanyl and oxycon pain addiction on the street? Yes. We keep hearing the negatives, okay? People dying because they're too irresponsible. Well, tell me what's happened to you. Okay. Me, I had a back surgery. It was a uh, laminectomy, dissectomy, at the uh, lumbar, like lower back. And it worked for a certain thing, but it gave me another kind of pain. So were you on opioids? Were you prescribed opioids? If I'm prescribed opioids? Were you prescribed opioids at any time? Oh, it's been 23 years. And how long were you on opioids? For 23 years? 23 years. And what's happened now? Okay. You know what this, taking this did for me? Instead of being at home, on the couch, not walking well, I had just a brand new baby at the time. It made me raise my child, go back to full-time work, train a new career that I had for 12 years. So this is what opioid gave me. And what have they done now? Have you, have you, have you been cut off? Oh, yes. <laughs> now, after getting my teaching um, diploma. After 12 years, a beautiful career, because the government says no more, I was cut off halfway in my dosage. So I had to stop working. So they cut half of your dosage? Yes. I'm lucky enough. Did they do that immediately? Was it like... No, it was gradual. Gradual. But what is your... So what is your life like now? You said you could... You're not teaching anymore. Oh, no, I cannot because I cannot stand up you know, my pain is like uh, pinching a finger in the door, okay? You know that throbbing? Yes. Well, that's what it is from waist to toes. Wow. So for me, teaching was the best because I could move, yeah. I could sit, and I could stand. Yeah. But to a certain degree, I still need the opioids. See, morphine is a beautiful drug because... Well, just, 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 just bear with me, please. Yeah. I want to ask you this question. Yeah. How was it explained to you that you were going to be getting 50% less medication than you've been getting for 23 years. Well, what were you told? Told 50%. It was told that my doctor was um, slowly getting rid of his patients on opioids. Right. Heard that before. And uh, slowly we had to go down to zero. Yep. So it's been two years. I'm his highest, highest, highest patient, like highest dosage in the clinic. So far, I'm fortunate that he still kept me on, and I don't know what's going to happen, and it scares me. It scares me, and that's why I'm so happy that you're doing this. Sylvie, thank you for the call. We're going to keep talking about this. I, I wish I could reach out to Barry and uh, um, Marvin. I wish I could reach out and just, and we all do, we could reach out and help, but this is not the first time we've heard this kind of story. It won't be the last. What's, what's, uh, is there any advice, Barry, that you would give, Sylvie? You know, Roy... <laughs> Not really, huh? It really isn't anymore. I, but, you know, I, I found it as, as always astounding that they'll treat people like Sylvia like that. Yet when it comes to the other aspect, we keep hearing about how many people are overdosing on these things and, you know, 2,500 or 3,000 people a year. Mm-hmm. Yet here we have a condition that affects more people than heart disease, cancer, and diabetes combined. Combined, Roy. Yet what do we hear about it? We hear that because all these overdoses are happening in our society that, of course, now that, that involves chronic pain patients. And then so we have to cut them off. And quite frankly, if those morons really think that they're going to solve the problem by cutting back on opioids, I mean, we only have to go back to the 30s into Prohibition and know what happened. And and even then, 
uh, when they did that, they still allowed certain things to be put into the bootlegging mm-hmm, stuff, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and how many people died from that. So exactly the same thing is going yeah. on. At 30 seconds before we take a break. Marvin, are the chronic pain patients expendable? Well, it certainly does seem to be. And, you know, when you think about it, uh, medicine is supposed to relieve pain and suffering. Right. But what medicine is now doing is creating pain and suffering. And that's and a lot despicable. of it. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Marvin Ross is with me, writes on health issues for, as we keep saying, Huffington Post and others in Canada, although other media don't want to hear about chronic pain patients. And uh, also Barry Ulmer, who's the executive director of the Chronic Pain Association of Canada. Before we get that um, that correspondence you had with, uh, with, with the pain patient, Marvin, let me get John in Toronto on the line. Numbers 800-263-2428 for you to call us. John, what's your experience, sir? And thank you so much for your call. You're welcome. Uh, can you hear me, Roy? Yeah, we can hear you just fine. Great. Yeah, thank you for uh, doing this. It's a clear service. Um, I actually recently called CBC. They were doing a similar program. They wouldn't put me on the air. To uh, So it seems to be, and I don't want to say conspiracy, but there seems to be a concentrated effort on the um, the media, and includes CBC in that, to take the other side of the story, that being uh, empathy or sympathy for those people who I understand if there are people dying. Yeah. Um, but let me just, if I may, say that my experience just trying to get pain relief has been almost impossible. Um, I am on morphine for uh, herniated disc and uh, have scoliosis. I will drive all the way up to um, Newmarket to get 15 milligrams of, uh, I, and that's a long way from where I live downtown Toronto, but I've tried every single clinic in my area. Uh, the signs are posted on the wall. They will refuse to even uh, ascertain that, that conversation uh, to give pain relief for people who obviously... So when you, when you call, like John, 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 when you call and you say, I need help, I'm a chronic pain patient, I need this appropriate, this medication, if you mention opioids, uh, what, what they just tell you, don't bother coming? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll actually go physically to the clinic. Yeah. Uh, the first thing you'll see on the wall is no uh, opioids, uh, but now they're even including morphine, which is what I am on. It's only 15 milligrams. That's the best I can get. Uh, it's not adequate, but it does help me, but it's not adequate. So it says here on my screen that you left medical school because of this. 30 years ago, I, be, I remember lying on my floor uh, in my uh you know, my little residence uh, in pain, yep. So uh, I gave up. I did a business degree, so I'm okay. But uh, that study, you know, the sitting or the standing or uh, yeah, any uh, repetitive uh, also uh, exercise will, uh, it's chronic for sure, but I get the oh, Okay, look, let me ask you a couple of questions. Let, John, let me ask you a couple of questions. Sure. On a scale of 1 to 10, where would your pain be on average during the day? Well, uh, like there's two different pains, and uh, the pain relief will help the chronic pain, but then when it goes into a spasm, which I could get any time, usually about once a week, I... Like, it's like a sprain, and then I can't get out of bed. Okay, but so is the pain severe? Well, that would be very severe, yeah. There's times I cannot walk. So, so sorry to push you along, but what are you getting in the way of pain relief? What's being prescribed to you? Uh... 50 milligrams every uh, once a day, but I have to travel quite far to a clinic. And like I said, where I live in Toronto, I tried several, I would say 20 clinics. So that was the, the only one that would offer me pain relief. So I don't really know where everyone's getting this Oxycontin. I really don't. Okay. So, so I don't quite understand. Tell me in about 30 seconds, what's your situation now? When you get up in the morning, are you going to be in pain every day because you can't get the medication that you require? Yes, uh, but the 50 milligrams I do get does help, I must admit. Okay. It's not sufficient, no. All right, I appreciate the call. Uh, it's, it's hard to explain, isn't it? I'm sure that you, uh, that you run into this all the time, Barry, when people try to explain what it is they're dealing with because their lives have changed so dramatically and they and they and they don't know what's coming their way. 
Oh, absolutely. You know, and 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 Roy, you know, there's uh, this whole thing is brought on. There's going to be a real tragedy going on in Halifax right now. I'm sure you're aware of. The, I am aware. The Dalhousie Clinic there is is just cl- is closing in the year, and now there's 555 pain patients who have no place to go, and and some are already going to the streets, and and quite frankly, we'll see suicides from that, and and uh, that that is just criminal. Why does nobody care about that? I. <laughs> You, uh, I wish somebody could explain that. No, seriously, why, why does nobody care about that? Yeah. When, when, when we talk about 865 deaths because of opioid overdose as being a, a crisis and a national emergency, I'm going to say that's a very sad situation. It's a, and I, it's, it's, it's awful that that happened, and I feel terribly sorry. I feel terrible about it. But an, a national tragedy is 40,000 people dying of, of, of tobacco-related illnesses, and nothing's done about that. It's perfectly legal. It's okay. You don't need a prescription. You just go buy your cigs. I, I agree, Roy. I, it's I, crazy. I can't explain it, uh, and I wish somebody would because it's just absolutely sheer stupidity. Marvin, why? Uh, I wish I could answer Okay, that. so nobody knows why the chronic pain patient is ignored. They're low, low-hanging fruit for yeah. politicians. Yeah, and a whole lot of them. You know, so that that's the reason, and nobody wants to listen. Share the story with us, please. Okay, I'm going to make a suggestion for people. Um, I got an email yesterday from a woman in Ontario who, you know, um, the usual story about uh, a multiplicity of chronic illnesses, uh, chronic pain, a difficulty finding a doctor, doctors who are cutting her down on her her medication, which helps. And I suggested to her that she write to the chair of the guideline committee, um, to the CEO of Health Quality Ontario, and to the registrar of the uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. Um, I know she sent an email to Jason Busey, who is the um, uh, the researcher chiropractor? He's not even a a, a medical doctor uh, at McMaster, who chaired the guideline committee, and she told him her story, and the reply that she got back was pretty quick, so that's commendable on his part. But it was the usual: these are guidelines. Um, there are weak guidelines, um, blah, 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 um, which is all true, but it's not reality. And the reality is that doctors are under pressure from the regulatory colleges to cut down on the use of prescriptions. So she emailed them back, uh, quite angry, uh, saying, you know, all he was doing was providing BS. Um, and actually, as I'm on the phone now, an email came through. She had emailed him again with a very long explanation of what he should do. Mm-hmm. So uh, my suggestion is to people in Canada is if you're having a problem, and I know many, many of you are, then to write to the chair of the Canadian Guidelines. His name is Jason Busey. That's B as Bob, B as in Bob, U-S-S, Sam, Sam, E. And his email address is BuseyJW at McMaster.ca. Uh, so that's, again, his last name is B as in Bob, U, Sam, Sam, E, and then JW at McMaster.ca. And I would also recommend to people that they write to their members of the Legislative Assembly or Member of Parliament in Ottawa, all of them, and politicians only listen um when they're forced to listen yeah. by... The only situation here, Marvin, is that we've, you know, we've said this before, and the situation continues to deteriorate. Uh, it's, it's, it's horrible for, for the individual people. Yeah. Uh, and there has to be... We have to take... 
there has to be an interest. I really believe there has to be an interest from mainstream media in the chronic pain patients. And unfortunately, what's going to create that is an increase in the numbers of suicides. Yeah. That is what's going to drive people to say, hey, wait a minute, maybe we should be covering this. So, yeah, although most suicides go unreported. Well, I think that probably will change if these numbers yeah. are, if they, if, they, if they climb dramatically. Guys, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me. I appreciate it. It's always great talking to you. Uh, you know the situation as it is. Marvin Ross and Barry Ohm. Barry is the executive director of the Chronic Pain Association of Canada. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Roy. Thank you for your time, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Look, I get it. Minimum wage is an extremely important issue. I get it. I understand that. There are people who can afford to pay a minimum wage. What do we have in Alberta? It's uh, $13.60. That's as of this past September, so really just a few weeks ago. In British Columbia, it's $11.35 per hour. That went up 50 cents an hour, also in September. And in Ontario, it's $11.60. And uh, Premier Wynne desperately trying to hang on to that great job and big office at the legislature is promising a $15 an hour minimum wage. I understand that for people who are earning minimum wage, that's tough. If that's your only income, I understand that. Then you have to go and find a second and a third job. I get that. But it's also tough on small mom-and-pop operations or small businesses, I mean small businesses, to pay a salary they hadn't budgeted for and which they don't believe is worth that amount of money. Their profits aren't large. They get by, and so $15 an hour, probably more than they can handle, $13.60 similarly, eleven thirty-five similarly. In Manitoba, they've tied the minimum wage to the cost of living, which is the way it used to be in the province of Ontario. But it's a, it's a major issue, and I was tweeting on it at the Roy Green Show. Follow me there. And... Uh, so sending out tweets on it, and there was immediate response. But there's an attitude that persists that it's really up to the employer to take care of the employee. To a certain extent, that's true. But it is a trade, isn't it? It's a trade for, for, for your work and your skills for the salary that the employer is paying. And I'm not holding corporate hands here for anybody. I'm just saying that if you know what the job pays and you take the job, then you made an agreement. Now, if the company is taking advantage of you, we have labor laws in this country. Anyway, there's a lot to be talked about. And my number is 800-263-2428 across Canada, 800-263-2428. If you have an experience with minimum wage personally, then give me a call. If you're living on minimum wage now, are you getting by? Is it possible to get by where you live on what you earn if you're on minimum wage? 800-263-2428. Do you think your employer is treating you fairly? Is the employer treating you fairly by paying you minimum wage, or do you think the employer could afford to pay more? I don't even know if that's a question that anybody's going to answer any other way than saying, yes, the employer could say more, pay more, except for the employer. Got a small place, gas station, corner store, making a few bucks, paying taxes. Then if you happen to be in the province of Ontario, along comes Kathleen Wynne, who spends hundreds of billions of dollars in messing up the hydro with her predecessor and says $15 an hour is the minimum wage. And then she tosses a bone to the employer a couple of days ago or a tax bone, and subsequently says, well, that was never intended as a trade-off for a $15 an hour minimum wage. Okay, let's uh, give you that number again. It's 800-263-2428. If you're a small business owner 
Can you afford the minimum wage you're paying now? Could you afford an increase? Is it up to you? And if you're working at minimum wage, are you being are you being ripped off by your employer? Should government stand up for you and say, hey, employer, you've got to pay more? 800-263-2428, Roy Green Show, Chorus Radio Network. Julie Kuczynski joins me on the show, and uh, she's the Ontario Director of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and she sits on the CFIB National Minimum Wage Committee. Julie, thank you for the time, and within the overall purview of the CFIB, and the agenda of issues that you deal with, is minimum wage rank where? In the middle of the top, at the bottom, where? Well, right now, it's a very important issue because of what's happening across the country. What we're seeing, Roy, is a very dangerous trend. We're seeing Ontario, B.C., and Alberta right now, and who knows which province next, campaigning on a $15 minimum wage because it's the politically smart thing to do in their opinion, They've done no evidence to say whether business can support it. And secondly, it's easy to make a promise that you don't have to pay for. And this is what the danger is, because other governments going into elections next year could do the same thing because they don't have to pay for that promise. It's on the backs of small business. And we note that the $15 an hour minimum wage in the province of Ontario is to take effect only after the election, which takes place in seven months. However, however, Roy, the biggest increase to $14, which Mm -hmm. is 23%, Mm -hmm. would take place if and when this bill passes. It's expected to pass next week. That would take place on January 1st, 2018. So potentially you're looking at a 23% minimum wage increase in Ontario with businesses being given approximately one month to prepare. Not fair. How does a business plan when it has all these other input costs that it's dealing with and higher costs coming down the pipe next year for CPP, for EI, hydro's going to go up again, there's still cap-and-trade fallout. So what our members are saying, Roy, they're not saying they don't want to help people and pay them an appropriate wage. What they're saying is, let's do some economic impact analyses some evidence-based policy as opposed to soundbite policy that sounds good to get somebody elected. When they're proceeding down a path, I, I like to say, Roy, it's like a horse down the racetrack with blinders on, totally oblivious to any economic impacts. I was talking to my colleagues in Alberta who told me that you just need to go down the streets of Calgary to see the impact of the minimum wage increases in Alberta, which haven't yet reached $15. As you said yourself, they're only at $13.60, but in Alberta they're getting to $15 on October 1st, 2018. And minimum wage was never intended as a career salary. It should be a step on the ladder to personal career improvement. So for somebody to say to the employer, I want this and this is going to be my salary for the rest of my life, just doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. Now let me ask you this. How long has minimum wage been set by governments? And, and okay. why? Right, and let me add also another question sure. here, Julie. Uh, why was it introduced to offset the avaricious mom and pop corner store operators? Well, in Ontario and elsewhere, the other provinces I mentioned, it is clearly a political measure with no evidence to support it. It's about getting reelected because mm-hmm. it sounds really cool, it's politically sexy because it makes for a good soundbite. Fairness for 15. So in Ontario specifically, there were no consultations whatsoever on increasing the minimum wage beyond the rate of inflation. As a matter of fact, a month before the policy was introduced, the Minister of Labour stood in the legislature and praised his own government for the impartial way Ontario raises its minimum wage based on inflation because it lets businesses plan and lets people keep more money. I love it when when governments compliment themselves. 
Yeah, well, they, they that's do all, that. That's yeah. always very special. Now, what would your what would your uh, your members of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business say across Canada? What would they say would be fair as far as minimum wage administration is concerned, as far as setting minimum wage is concerned? Because you can't just have – they can't have they – can't, they can't afford with constant increases in regulation, with, with high taxes, with uh, efforts like Trudeau's carbon tax, which he never uh, costed properly. They can't have this sort of thing happen. At the same time, they're aware that their employees having difficulty getting by on 10 or 11 bucks an hour – is that the employer's responsibility, though? So, what are your employee? What are your members saying? Well, our members are saying, and again, we need to appreciate that each province is very, very different yeah. in the way they like to do things. So, I don't want to start setting policy for our entire committee, but there are some similarities. Number one, it's safe to say that it's better to take politics out of the process of setting the minimum wage. There are different ways to achieve that. In Ontario, right now, but it will likely change very soon, it's basing the minimum wage increases on the rate of inflation. But in other provinces, it might be different. If you look at the C.D. Howe Institute report for Alberta, they talk about how you need to take current economic conditions into consideration for a particular province before setting a minimum wage. So if you translate that to a province like Ontario, you would need to do an economic impact analysis to see if the province can afford it. And then secondly, no arbitrary numbers. This has got to stop, Roy. This $15 is just a fancy pants, fancy, very alliteration way, fairness for 15 cutesy. Sounds like a good soundbite. But that's an arbitrary number. None of these arbitrary numbers. And if this is really about helping people on low wages, which we all want to do, nobody disputes that. Mm -hmm. It's how we get there. This is the easy road. Maybe we need to take the harder road and have a serious discussion. Because i got to tell you, Roy, there's a lot more involved here. Yeah, Julie, I'm going, Julie I'm, going to have, I'm going to have to stop you because I, I only have so many minutes in the hour. But I appreciate, really do appreciate your great guest. I'd like to have you back. But we're I going would to have, love to be on again, Roy. We're going to have to stop it here. And then I'm because I have to take some phone calls. I want to hear from people across the country. But I do want to talk to you again about the minimum wage issue. I would love to, Roy. You're a great guest. Thank you again. Thank you, sir. Have a lovely weekend. Thank you. You too. Julie Kwaczynski is the Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario for the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. She sits on the CFIB's National Minimum Wage Committee. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We've all heard the name uh, Roy Moore, Judge Roy Moore. In fact, I interviewed him. 20 years ago or so, uh, when he was an Alabama judge who decided he was going to keep the Ten Commandments in front of the courthouse. That I'd forgotten about that, but I looked back in, in my records. Anyhow, uh, Judge Moore is running for the Senate of the United States, and there are accusations that he has was sexually harassing uh, women, and uh, when he was in his 30s and a prosecutor, he was... Uh, asking 14-year-olds for dates, called one in school. He denies this, says it's not true. Gravis Marketing is a nonpartisan research firm, and it conducted a random survey of 478 likely voters across Alabama. And uh, Doug Kaplan, that's Doug Kaplan, Kaplan with a K, joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Doug, thank you very much. We have about four minutes to talk to you about this. And I, I, I'm going to go to the to question 10 have you heard or read any news about sexual assault accusations against Roy Moore recently? 11% said no. Are those people under a rock? Yeah, that's, that's the first poll we ran. The second poll we ran, it's 95% that um, have, have seen it and 5% that haven't. Okay. So when you ask, how did what you heard or read about the accusations impact your likelihood to vote for Roy Moore. What are Alabamans saying? Well, we ran two polls. We ran one last week and we ran one this week. And we saw a swing. We saw a, um, a roughly a seven-point swing. Last week, Moore was ahead by two points. Now Moore is behind by, by five points. So Jones, the Democrat, is now ahead 47-42. And... 
is he I mean is he done if it, when it comes to Alabama voters or does he have an opportunity to win that Senate seat? So the interesting thing about the poll is the big winner was the undecided column. The Democrat only gained 1%. Um, people uh, that were undecided uh, went up 6%. So it's possible the scandals could have peaked and more can come back. However, he has major issues. Okay, I may be looking at the poll that you did on the 10th of November. I think you're looking at the first one. Yeah, yeah. Who do you think is more likely telling the truth in that one? uh, Was it the four women or Republican Roy Moore? In the November 10th poll, 39% said the four women, 36% said Roy Moore. How would that uh, compare with what you found out this this past week? Yeah, those those numbers have held. Um, The big thing is this, is there's a set of voters that voted against more twice, Luther Strange voters. Those are people in the suburbs, um, you know, um, in suburbia, in Alabama. And those people are the ones that are undecided that, that are going to stay home or are going to make or break the election for more, the people who voted for Luther Strange. Is it unusual, will it be unusual for a, a Republican not to win the Senate seat, that particular Senate seat, which I think was the Attorney General's seat previously, uh, is it unusual for a Republican not to win the seat? Yeah, Richard Shelby is the other senator. Um, the, their last few wins were by 30 or 35 points. Wow, well, that's it's big. A, it's completely, it's a very conservative Republican state. So uh, your guess would not, I shouldn't say guess because you're polling. Your, your view of the situation is when the election rolls around, uh, looking at the trending that it's going to be uh, Alabamans will not vote for Roy Moore? They will not vote for Roy Moore unless there's a dramatic change and he explains himself. Yeah. Doug, thank you so much. It was short notice. I appreciate thank you, you coming so on. Oh, it's been great. Thank you. All the best. Doug Kaplan from Gravis Marketing, uh, the Alabama polling. So I have the November 10th poll, but I don't want to say that to him, but that's what they sent me. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I've been doing a lot of reading uh, over the last couple of years, particularly on electromagnetic pulses, EMPs. They're the natural variety. And then there are the ones that are of huge, huge and existential concern. And that variety consists of thermonuclear devices exploded in the atmosphere or above the atmosphere. I don't know how far the atmosphere goes up. But uh, let's say the two North Korean satellites that are orbiting the United States, the contiguous United States, let's say those two North Korean satellites were being used as platforms for thermonuclear devices to be exploded, the impact would be immense. And some people have suggested that such an explosion would destroy the entire power grid, not only the United States, but Canada as well, and that by the end of a year, 90% of the population would be dead. Now, there are people who poo-poo this, because it's always easy to say, no, it could never happen. And I'm going to be talking to Dr. Um, Peter Pry in just just a moment. I, I just want to read this. This actually is from something Dr. Pry sent me. Just to bring it into context, Real-world failures of electrical grids from various causes indicate that a nuclear EMP attack would have catastrophic consequences. Significant and highly disruptive blackouts have been caused by single-point failures cascading into system-wide failures originating from damage comprising far less than 1% of the total system. For example, the Great Northeast Blackout of 2003 that put 50 million people in the dark for a day contributed to at least 11 deaths and cost an estimate $6 billion, originated from a single failure point when a power line contacted a tree branch. The New York City blackout of 1977 that resulted in the arrests of 4,500 looters and the injury of 550 police officers was caused by a lightning strike on a substation that tripped two circuit breakers. The Great Northeast Blackout of 1965 that affected 30 million people happened because a protective relay on a transmission line was improperly set. And India's nationwide blackout of July 30, 31, 2012, the largest blackout in history, affected 670 million people, 9% of the world's population, and it was caused by the overload of a single high-voltage power line. 
Oh, no. We're not dependent on the power grid. Oh, no. And nothing could happen to it. And, of course, we know that when a natural EMP event happened in Hawaii, just a series of streetlights burst. So everybody's leaning on that. Uh, Dr. Peter Vincent Price, the executive director of the Congressional Task Force on National and Homeland Security, and he's the chief of staff of the Congressional EMP Commission. He's issued a warning to the White House recently about the threat and the danger of EMPs and pointed at North Korea. He's also the author of Blackout Wars and Electric Armageddon. Dr. Pry, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. So the, the, the commission to assess the threat to the United States from electromagnetic pulse attack was established by Congress in 2001. What was the threat then? What is the threat now? And in, in simple terms for simple people, how much danger are we potentially in? We're, we're, the whole world faces an existential threat, and North America in particular, because our societies are the most advanced technologically, and we are more dependent than most of other societies, the most dependent societies, in fact, both America and Canada, I mean the United States and Canada, on electrical systems, electrical power and the like. There's the threat from the sun that you mentioned, for example, which isn't just a theoretical threat that might happen. It will happen. It's inevitable that it will happen. NASA estimates the likelihood is 12% per decade, which virtually guarantees that within this generation or the next, we will experience another geomagnetic superstorm like the 1859 Carrington event, which is the largest uh, geomagnetic storm known to us on record, the largest solar storm known to us on record, which, if it happened today, would affect the whole world. The Carrington event in 1859 affected the whole world. Fortunately, back in those days, those horse and buggy days, civilization was not dependent on, on electricity, and the electrical systems that existed weren't, weren't foundational to societal survival. Telegraph systems existed, you know, early primitive electronics, and the colonial powers had put telegraph systems in wherever they put in railroads, and they had put in railroads and telegraph systems on every major continent, in Africa, in India and China, uh, throughout Western Europe and Russia and the, and the Americas. And everywhere in the world, these systems uh, were basically destroyed by the uh, Carrington event of 1859 in very dramatic ways. Uh, telegraph keys melted, telegraph wires burst into flames, causing forest fires. The transatlantic cable that had just been laid in 1859 connecting the United States to uh, Europe the pulse was so powerful it reached down miles deep into the Atlantic Ocean and destroyed it, and they had to relay that. So this is a, the likelihood of a threat from the sun happening is a 100%. It will happen. And in fact, we, were, we narrowly escaped getting hit by a Carrington-class coronal mass ejection on the 25th of July in, uh, in 2012, just a few years ago. It, missed, uh, it crossed the path of the Earth and missed us by just three days. We're basically in a Russian roulette game of Russian roulette with the sun. These things come out of the sun all the time. And sooner or later, one of them is going to hit us again. Uh, you don't have to be a genius to know that since the like, you know, these happen every century or so, it's been more than a century since 1859. So we're overdue for that. So, Dr. Pry, if, if such an event were to happen now, or is it conceivable that the North Korean satellites, the two satellites, that are some 300 kilometers above the Earth's surface, is it conceivable that the regime in North Korea has been able to create uh, a reality where those satellites are platforms for the explosion of a thermonuclear device in order to create the kind of um, electromagnetic pulse that you're talking about that would fry our electrical grid systems is that conceivable? And if that were to happen, a lot of ifs here. Uh, I've heard that 90% of the world's population, or at least 90% of North America's population, would be dead within a year. Is all of that yes. conceivable? Uh, not just conceivable. The EMP Commission is very concerned about that. Those aren't just my opinions, but the, the commission, you know, which is an official congressional commission that was so, set up uh, to advise the Department of Defense and uh, the Congress and the White House, you know, has been warning that those satellites could be nuclear-armed with 
with what we call, what the Russians and Chinese call, super EMP weapons. There's a kind of thermonuclear weapon, not big, not of all, not of large yield. Most people think you need a big, high yield weapon to make an EMP, and on a big, high yield weapon of conventional design, will make a powerful EMP. Uh, you don't need that, though. Uh, you know, even a Hiroshima-type primitive bomb would be enough to have catastrophic consequences. But the worst EMP threat, the worst, is the nuclear EMP threat from this super EMP weapon. It's a small thermonuclear device, which is not designed to make a big explosion. It's designed to convert the energy into gamma rays, which is what causes it causes the what we call the E1 EMP effect. It's a kind of EMP that isn't made in nature, and it doesn't occur in these geomagnetic solar storms. It's very high frequency, and so it will actually do a lot deeper damage than the solar storms because it can couple directly into small objects like personal computers on your desk, automobiles, airplanes flying through the sky, that sort of thing. And it can also, of course, destroy electric grids, communication systems, transportation systems, the food and water infrastructures that we depend upon and do so at the speed of light over an area, given the orbital attitude of the satellites, over virtually all of Canada, the 48 contiguous United States, and much of Mexico. And um, yes, we also have estimated that up to 90% of the population could die. Something between two-thirds and 90% we think would be a good estimate for that. And I know people are appalled and they wonder, how do we get those numbers? It's not difficult to do the calculation yourself. You know, you can Google the population of the United States in the year 1900, you know, which is um, prior to the introduction of electricity and the modern high-tech critical infrastructures that now support our population of 325 million people. 325 million people today, all right, but before we had these modern, the only reason we can support such a large population is because of the electric grid and the other life-sustaining critical infrastructures that depend upon electricity. That's how we get that big population. But in 1900, the population was 76 million, all right? And, uh, and in 1900, uh, North America, the United States, and Canada were among the most advanced societies on Earth. And uh, the non-electrical, the critical infrastructures we had then were things like coal-fired locomotives with a national you know, railroad system. 75% of the people were farmers. Uh, every house had well water. Uh, you know, we weren't dependent on electrical-driven wells and pumps and, and things of that sort. Right. There were you know, hundreds of thousands of horse-drawn vehicles in a well-planned, well-developed uh, 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 market economy for delivering food and agricultural products to the cities so that people could be fed. None of that exists anymore. It's gone with the wind. So, you know, if you were to lose the electric grid and our modern critical infrastructures, we just know from history that the natural, our ability, that back in the good old days, when we had those infrastructures, we could support only 76 million people. So <laughs> subtract 76 million people yeah. from 325 million, right. and that's going to be at risk. And because those 76 million were sustained by infrastructures that no longer exist, logically, the number of people that the what remains will be able to survive is going to be under that number. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. My guest is Dr. Peter Pry. Uh, he's the executive director of the Congressional Task Force on National and Homeland Security and chief of staff of the Congressional EMP Commission, and he's the author of several books, including Blackout Wars and Electric Armageddon. Dr. Pry, uh, I was also reading from the material that you sent me that a former NASA rocket scientist... James Oberg, who visited North Korea's space launch base and witnessed their measures uh, to conceal space launch payloads, he concludes that uh, there's a very real and significant danger of North Korea taking uh, this kind of action that we've been talking about. And Kim Jong-un doesn't seem to fear any U.S. threats. Now, he may be a risk taker and a gambler, but gamblers become more adventurous when they're holding good cards or cards they consider to be good good cards. Um what what needs to be done or what can be done 
to mitigate against this existential threat? Oh, well, ultimately, the work of the EMP Commission is a good news story. Technologically, we know how to protect against EMP. There's no reason for our countries to be vulnerable to it. The Department of Defense has been hardening military systems for over 50 years using things like Faraday cages and blocking devices and surge arresters. We, we never hardened, unfortunately, the civilian critical infrastructures, and that's what we need to be doing. Uh, it, uh, it's not enough to just protect our military forces. We need to, the highest priority should be to pre- be protecting our people. And it wouldn't even cost that much. You know, we estimate that it would cost about $2 billion to protect the electric grid, which is, uh, which is what we give away in foreign aid to Pakistan every year. If we fo- suspended foreign aid to Pakistan for one year and spent it on hardening the electric grid, it would go a long way toward solving this problem. And I'm happy to say, and one of the reasons I'm so pleased to be invited to speak on the radio to a Canadian audience, you know, is that my task force has, has partnered with, like, the McKenzie Institute in Canada. You know, we have partners in Canada. We're also interested in protecting the Canadian grid, because the Canadian grid and the U.S. grid are not separate. They're organically linked. We are in the same boat. You know, we are serviced by one big grid. And the... Um, McKenzie Institute has been holds cybersecurity conferences every year and tries to advance the policy of EMP preparedness. I have testified before the Canadian Parliament on the importance of doing this, and I think it would be easier to make progress in Canada than it would in the United States, You know, in part because your utilities are more sensitive to the EMP threat. You had the Hydro-Quebec solar storm in 1989 that blacked out half of Canada, in 90 seconds. It only lasted a day, but it did send a message to the utilities that, hey, this natural EMP threat at least is real. And um, while they haven't done what they really should be doing, I mean, they haven't protected the Canadian grid, part of the grid, to the extent that really should be done, they've done better than we've done in the United States. And uh, uh, your government also, your Canada isn't hobbled by the lobbies that we have for the electric power industry. I mean, we have you know, our electric power is provided by 3,000 different utilities, you know, and uh, with a very powerful lobbying organization called the NERC, North American Electric Reliability Corporation, that's supposed to provide for grid security, but in reality it's a lobby mm-hmm. proposing almost anything. And they interfere in Canada, too, because they, they have, they have uh, influence in Canada to try to stop the Canadian utilities from mm-hmm. protecting themselves. Dr. Pryor... They don't want to have to do... Something in the United States. I have about 45 seconds. Could you just encapsulate what we're facing now, right now? I, uh, we're facing Caligula in the form of Kim Jong-un armed with nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, this guy is so unstable uh, and uh, unpredictable. As you said, he's a risk taker. Uh, I'm afraid people are deluding themselves if, if they think that, that uh, mutual assured destruction is a uh, the, that they think worked during the Cold War, and I can tell you in a d- different time that okay. it really didn't. We came very close to, to knocking ourselves out in the Cold War. All right. But Kim Jong-un is, uh, uh, we, cannot, uh, we cannot allow him All right. to acquire the ability to strike. Dr. Pry, the main if, I don't, if I don't stop, later, he will do it. if I don't stop, the satellite is going to stop us. Thank you so much for the time. I hope you'll come back. Oh, I'd be, be honored to. All right, thank you so much, Dr. Peter Pry. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.